Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. Hoder. Hoder. Buddy. I know you're looking for something to do down there beneath the cave, but I want to make sure you know. Hold on. <laughs> Binge mode contains adult content. If you're okay with what you see on Game of Thrones, you'll be okay with binge mode. Hold on. And now, binge mode. Jon Snow was going to destroy the Night's Watch. He let the wildlings through our gates as no Lord Commander has ever done before. He gave them the very land on which they reaved and raped and murdered. Lord Commander Snow did what he thought was right. I've no doubt about that. And what he thought was right would have been the end of us. Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished gazing upon his true wrinkly form in the mirror and then curling up nude under the furs for a restorative snooze. I think I look okay. (laughs) Binge mode really accelerates the aging process. It's Ringer staff writer and your maester. Jason Concepcion. Yeah. Jason. Yes. If you're planning to see tomorrow, you <laughs> picked the wrong podcast wow. studio. We are re-watching all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones. We're deep diving one episode at a time. And guys. Did it. At long last, we have reached the final season. We're we on the, the final 10 episodes of our binge watch here. Requisite spoiler warning. We will be going deep on details from the show and the books from this episode and beyond. So grab some mutton. For the road. It's hard to hunt out there. Yeah. Because it's time to break down season six, episode one, The Red Woman. Jason? Yeah. If I may quote First Ranger Thorne. Sure. One of your favorite philosophers. I love that guy. You all know why you're here. Jon Snow is dead. It's true. Let's be real, guys. Game of Thrones fans care about numerous characters, numerous storylines, but there was one thing that we all tuned in to this season six premiere to see. Jon Snow reborn. Jon Snow's fate confirmed. Had he definitely died? If he had, when would he be reborn? Not really if, when. This was the question that dominated the offseason, that obsessed a fan base, and honestly, like, the culture at large. Huge. People were pretty close to certain, at least as certain as they could be about a thing that had not actually happened yet in the books, that our hero was not out of our Mm -hmm. lives forever. And yet, (laughs) the balls on the Game of Thrones team, the season six premiere does not actually see our hero (laughs) rise again. That's right. This is amazing. But plenty of other things do happen, and a lot of them happen over John's bloodied corpse. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually does transpire in this season premiere by taking a quick trip down our very own King's Road. Up at Castle Black, 
Moments after the season five finale, dawn is breaking and ghosts' howls echo across the yard and skip across the surface of the wall, flying up into space. They alert Davos that something is amiss. He runs out to the yard, finds John's body. He and a group of snow loyalists, including Ed, of course, barricade themselves inside. Melisandre arrives. John's death grinds her already shattered confidence into dust. I saw him in the flames fighting at Winterfell, she says. She saw a lot of things. Thorne and the conspirators announce uh, what they have done in a meeting in the, in the hall, and they attempt to justify their foul deeds to the men. Ed wants to bang it out with these guys. Let's go. I don't care if I die. Fuck Thorne. Fuck these guys. Let's just do this. Davos, always the cooler head, thinks there's an other way. Let's go send an emissary to the wildlings. Thorne addresses Davos through the door. He says, surrender by nightfall. He offers amnesty for the brothers and a horse for Davos. Davos knows if they open the door, they die. He buys some time and says, get me some mutton too, by the way, dude, I'm hungry. <laughs> and he has one more idea, Melisandre. Mm. Speaking of her, in the wake of so many missteps, so many mistakes, so many misread prophecies, Melisandre is questioning everything. She removes her glamour necklace and appears as she really is, an ancient and withered crone. Over in Winterfell, Roos congratulates Ramsay on his victory against Stannis, but never one for prolonged praise has a bone to pick as well. The matter of his missing bride and his missing creature is a very important one. Ramsay's like, don't worry, Pops. I got this. I sent my best hounds after them. Well, he did indeed. Theon and Sansa are running for their lives through the snow-covered woods across fields and bone-chilling rivers. The hounds, the Boltons, find them huddling under a fallen tree. But is that Brienne of Tarth's music we hear? It is! <laughs> is that Sex God Pod's music we hear? <laughs> Brienne and Pod show up. Brienne naturally crushes it. Pod holds his own. Even Theon chips in. And after these pesky Boltons are taken care of and the dogs literally just vanish, just straight vanish. (laughs) They're just like, I'm out. (laughs) Brienne, in one of the more touching scenes in the show's run, swears her sword to Sansa, who says the words back and accepts them. Down in Dorne. Ilaria, with Tyene Sand in tow, help the gout-ridden Prince Doran up the steps of the water gardens to his wheelchair. Just then, a maester arrives with a message. Oh, what's this? Princess Marcella has died. Ilaria and Tyene take the opportunity to launch their coup. They stab Prince Doran as well as Ario Hota. R.I.P. both you guys, both of them, much better in the books as the assembled guardsmen of Dorne just kind of stand around and watch. Yes. And waiting for this one. With his final breath, Doran begs for the life of his son, Tristane. Ilaria says, weak men will never rule Dorne again. Doesn't look good for Prince Tristane. Sure enough. Yeah. <laughs> over in King's Landing. Tristane hanging out on his ship, painting those creepy dead body sure. eye stones from Marcella. Killed. In his ship cabin by Obara and Nim, who... Hiding in a... Boy, did they get there in a hurry. <laughs> Hiding in, in the, the hold or something? Speaking of boats. Yeah. Jamie has arrived back in King's Landing with Marcella's body covered 
by the prophetic golden shroud. Cersei is heartbroken and not in the way that Cersei sometimes is, in the purest, most human, most maternal way possible. She tells Jamie about the prophecy and Jamie rebels against her resignation. Fuck prophecy, fuck fate, fuck everyone who isn't us. That's what Jason and I say to each other every, every day. day. And Zach's like, guys, what about me? <laughs> Marjorie, meanwhile, remains imprisoned in the sept, refuses to confess, but the high sparrow yeah. is trying to get in there. Well, anyway, in Bravos, <laughs> <laughs> Arya reduced to the status of a simple beggar. She sits on a street corner with a wooden bowl and just begs for coins. Suddenly, she is accosted by the waif, bearing two staffs, bow staffs, and they kind of duke it out. Well, really, the waif just kicks Arya's ass and then disappears into the afternoon daylight, saying, I'll be back. In Marine, Tyrion, Varys, going for a stroll, touring historic downtown Marine. With the queen gone, the streets are uneasy, and sure enough, the suns set fire to Danny's fleet. Where are the guards, guys? What is happening here? Out in the Dothraki Sea, Jorah, Dario, bonding, talking, searching for Danny. Love this. Sharing some wonderful moments. Our latest surprising Dynamic Thrones duo. They find Danny's sign in a wide circle of hoof prints. Danny appears before Kal Moro. When he realizes that she's the widow of Kal Drogo, he cuts her bindings. But he's not taking her to Marine. He's not letting her go. He plans to take her to Device Dothrak to live among the Doshkaleen, the widows of the Kals. Mal. Yeah. John thrust a terrible choice upon us, and we have made it. That gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's cut right to the core of it by sticking it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is improvising. The best laid plans of wargs and kings and beggars and lords often go awry, as we have seen, when the schemes that you've been crafting for years crumble because of unforeseen circumstances, like, say, your sworn brothers assassinating you or a dragon flying you to the Dothraki Sea and falling asleep over a pit of charcoal boiled bones. <laughs> what do you do next? You make it up as you go along. You freestyle. Let's start with Davos Seaworth, the Onion Knight. Good guy. Davos and John's other defenders. Ghost, of yes. course. Ed, oh. of course. And then just a handful of dudes we just, like, legit do yeah. not know. The, the members of, like, a <laughs> fucking southern metal band that we've never seen, literally never seen, ever. So here's what happens. Davos discovers John's body. Sad. Think about this moment from Davos's perspective. He's yeah. at Castle Black because Stannis sent him there. That's right. Not because he's actually John's man. That's right. Barely knows John. He also, in addition to the, that, knows because of Melisandre's arrival that Stannis is doomed. There is no reason to stay at Castle Black and try to get what Stannis needed because there is no Stannis, right? There is no need. He could easily have seen John's corpse, right. seen the traitor sign and thought, well, this is uh, not my business. Seems like a great time to, right. to go home. Go back to Winterfell just to see, you know, why take Mel's word for it? Go check it out. Go right. to Dragonstone. Go to Rainwood. Right. There's no reason to stay in Castle Black, but he chose to. He chose to help. He chose to improvise. Help me get him inside, he says. Now, 
Ed knows right away that right. this was Thorne's work, of course. Who else? Before Ed can fetch ghost, there's a knock on the door. Who is it? It's Mel. And man, does she look like she's been having a tough 48 hours. Tough stuff. She had to edit three pieces. She fucking <laughs> had to do binge mode. Her king is most likely dead. She burned a girl for no apparent reason. And now Jon Snow, who's king's blood was like calling to her across the yard and who she saw fighting on the battlements of Winterfell is now laying on a table with his fucking guts hanging out and it's bad. And she says, I saw him in the flames fighting at Winterfell. Nah, well, in the moment, this is just one more absolutely crushing failure. And in time, she'll come to realize that it's still a vision that's yet to pass. And then there's Ghost, who, when he comes in, is just like, when he sniffs John's hand, that is so agonizing. He like sniffs him and then he whimpers and then he pushes his hand a little with his nose. Very, very tough. And remember, wargs, which John is, has some sort of warging ability, as all the Starks do. They have a relationship with their animals that's extremely deep and very intimate in a way that is hard for other people to understand. They're not, you don't control your dire wolf. You have a relationship with it. You feel their spirit in there. And so this would be just extremely traumatic for Ghost. And John's loyalists, Ed in particular, are like, yo, let's fucking kill Thorne. Yes, he's got a lot of guys. I don't particularly care. I want to bang it out with these dudes. Let's go. Davos, incredible run from Davos stretching from season five into season six, where he's just like immediately jumps to, okay, what's the best way to handle this situation? Okay, bar the door. Great. We got the dog. Good. Melisandre's is here. That couldn't hurt. Okay, who do you trust? Who do you know? Who can we, how can we do this? And crucially, after hearing Thorn out, once Thorn shows up and is like, hey, uh, yeah, uh, amnesty to the brothers who are in there. I know it's a tough time for you guys. Davos, uh, it's not great here. I'm sure you hate it here. You can have a horse and you can leave. Can I have some mutton? Yeah, yeah, the mutton will get that. Davos, to his credit, is immediately like, yeah, guys, they're going to kill us if we open that door. We're dead. We're dead. And so Davos comes up with a crucial part of the plan. He sends Ed to go get the wildlings. They need reinforcements. They know that the, the Night's Watch before John's death was split something like 60-40 maybe. While John had loyalists and people that were down for him, the rest of the people who are on the fence are going to go with Thorne because they're the ascending power. So Davos improvises and he does all this shit. You know, Ed, he's really pushing back against yeah. this idea that, okay, Thorne will have made his speech. He will right. have secured Castle Black. He right. will know that we are opposing him because we're up here in this room, not right. down there with him. Ed says, I don't care right. who sits at the high table. John was my friend and those yeah. fuckers butchered him. Now we return the favor. That is bold, courageous, also slightly foolish because it's basically declaring civil war. Now, right. it's declaring civil war in response to someone within the Night's Watch who's already done that very same thing. But it would be easy for everybody to respond by saying, woof. Boy, two Lord Commanders in a row, right. taken down by their own men. Things have gotten out of hand here. Right. Time to come together. Time right. to really hit the pause button, sit, have a really methodical, deliberate right. chat. Change no. the tone of right. the conversation. That's not what's happening here. Right. It's quick reaction. It's some sort of base 
very human impulse that's driven by not only their friendship, but basically a sense of of right and wrong, a sense of duty that will just be interpreted differently by the different sides. There's the moment as soon as Thorne retreats from the door where Davos springs into action right away with these these men again who he doesn't know. Right. And they he, uh, they gravitate to him. Instantly. Yeah. It, it shows you what a naturally charismatic yeah. leader he is. Boys, I've been running from men like that all my life. In my yeah. learned opinion, we open that door, dun dun dun. They'll slaughter us all. He's great. He's really the shit. And also like the the mutton thing seems extremely amusing. Yeah, it seems like a throwaway, but also it's kind of like it's one Davos buying time. Let's see how far they're actually willing to right. go to 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 wait us out. And two, it's also kind of like a fuck you to those guys. Like oh, it's totally. just like that bravado in the face of extreme danger that kind of defines Davos as a character. Right. And there's also the great moment where one of the random bros in the room Love those guys. after Ghost has been added to the ranks and is off to get the wildlings. This this homie's like it's a sad fucking statement. If Dolores said is our <laughs> know, only right? chance. And Davos is like, you know what? Maybe he's not our only chance. Right. I got one more thought here. Hear me out. There's always the red woman. Ah, oh, what's the name of this episode? The, the red, red woman. woman. The response in the room? What's yeah. one redhead going to do against 40 yeah. armed men? And Davos is like, listen, buddy. Listen, I saw her birth a smoke baby from her vagine. <laughs> That went and killed a guy. I'm fucking serious. She can do some shit. She can do some shit. She drank poison, all that. Meanwhile, outside the door, Thorne and the other members of the Night's Watch with their SWAT team all assembled there, they aren't trying to hide what they've done. That would be an admission of guilt, really. They're just owning it. They're, they're like, hey, listen, yes, we uh, committed treason. Yes, we broke our vows. Um, but you know what? We had to. Thorne says, in the hall, on the hustings. We've committed treason, all of us. Jon Snow was my lord commander. I had no love for him. That was no secret. Yeah. <laughs> but I never once disobeyed an order. Loyalty is the foundation on which the Night's Watch is built, and the watch means everything to me. I have given my life. We have all given our lives to the Night's Watch. Jon Snow was going to destroy the Night's Watch. He let the wildlings through our gates. <laughs> He thrust a terrible choice upon us, and we made it. Here is Thorne talking about how they were forced, really, with an existential right. uh, choice. And yes, they broke their vows. They had to improvise because they were faced with this terrible choice, and they had to do what they had to do in order for the Watch to survive. And really, this is hypocrisy. When Thorne says, I always followed my oath, my vows. Yeah, but you just killed your Lord Commander. In killing him, though, they they violated their own honors as sworn brothers. You know, Thorne is, is saying there, basically, John forced us to improvise, so right. we did. We see this bubbling battle, battle on the brink of breaking out. Right. Tensions high. Extremely high. Both sides recognizing that the other one is actually kind of in a similar position of having to right. improvise. Well, because Davos is improvising. Specifically, you you see how much he's improvising when it comes to Melisandre because he hates this woman. That's the thing. He despises her. And that's, that's a key point to remember. If he is willing to turn to her, yeah. that shows that he is basically in whatever's going to work here. Right. He wants to help these men and he hasn't given up yet on John. Ramsey, over in Winterfell mm. and the surrounding environs, Ramsey, Sansa, Theon, Brienne, Pod, 
they're all in the midst of a massive and very dangerous improvisation. Sansa escape is obviously bad news for Ramsay. This was his bride, his key to having a hope to coalesce the North around Bolton rule. And he has a briefly tender mm. moment with what Miranda. What a guy. So sweet, yeah. thoughtful. The killer master's daughter. She smells dog. <laughs> and then the maester says, shall I have a grave dug for her, my lord? Or would you rather the men build a pyre? Buried, burned. She's good meat. Feed her to the hounds. What a fucking great, great. Such a romantic. Great human being. And then here comes Roos, who likes nothing better than to push the buttons of his bastard son, getting a lecture about losing Theon, about losing Sansa. A reckoning will come. We need to face it. The entire North. They won't back us without Sansa Stark. We no longer have Sansa Stark. You played your games with her. You played your games with the heirs of the Iron Islands, and now they're both gone. What the fuck were you doing about it, Roos? You could have put a stop <laughs> to this anytime. It's not like he was down hiding it from you. Cuddling with Walda. Step the fuck up, dude. But Ramsay, always willing, at least at this point, to try and rise to the challenge that his father puts forth, says, don't worry. I've got uh, some of my best hunters, some of my oh. best hounds after them. And then Roos points out that if he fails to find Sansa and produce an heir, well, the North will be in danger. Yes, they hold it now, but what happens in five, ten years? And then adds, just to light that, the appropriate fire under Ramsay. Let's hope the maester is right and Waldo is carrying a boy. <laughs> Ramsay, of course... Never one to respond well to threats. He's a dangerous man anyway, but he becomes extremely dangerous, extremely capricious with his cruelty when forced to improvise, when pushed out of his comfort zone. And Sansa and Theon, I'm going to talk about improvising. They're not even, they're just heading in a fucking direction. It's like, where are we going north? I don't know. Broadly north. Get as far away from the hounds as you can. (laughs) Right, that's it. See that freezing river that will kill you? Yeah. And then when all seemed lost, Theon and Sansa could run no more. The hounds are on them. They're huddling under a tree. Theon improvising his, taking his last chance really at throwing where's Sansa I don't know she's uh she left uh, right yeah she's gone it works for 0. 0.5 seconds <laughs> right literally 0. 0.5 fucking <laughs> seconds and then uh Brienne shows up who has been freestyling ever since she called a, an audible at the window when she heard that Stannis's troops were coming I mean the wasn't the plan the whole time was sit at this window wait for a candle and then since that time, she's just been doing whatever she needs to do. Her and Pod. Swing that stick, I want to take Podrick. a moment. Listen, the sword he can handle with one hand. Uh, we, we know. We know from his brothel exploits that he's a, he's he's a, a bit of a prodigy. He's a natural with stick-like implements. <laughs> and then so they fight him off. And Brienne, in a touching moment, Brienne swears again now to Sansa. This is really an incredible moment, and they smile, and it's really wonderful. And now, in this moment of relative and respective improvisation, they finally come together and find each other and can unite and move forward as one. Reunited, Tyrion and Varys, together in Marine, stroll in the streets. These two have no choice but to improvise because they are 
trying to figure out how to rule a city whose queen just flew off on dragon, where the sons of the harpy are actively staging an insurgency, yes. where even the freedmen, and this is the new rug, right. this is the new problem, are considering violent action of their right. own. Tyrion says, we're never going to fix what's wrong with the city from the top of an 800-foot pyramid. Time for some boots on the ground, right. leadership and We got to leave the green here. zone and walk out into the, into the wider landscape. Shortly after walking out, right. Tyrion becomes very concerned by some of what they're seeing and some of what they're yeah. hearing. They cross some graffiti. We've seen the Kill the Masters right. tag repeatedly throughout the time in, in Slaver's Bay. And now, what else is there? Misa. Misa. Is a master. Uh-oh. Right. This adds a troubling new wrinkle to the already overboiling tensions in the city because now you're adding religion to it. Right. Our queen is not as popular in Marine as she used to be. Well, which seems like a reasonable observation based <laughs> on what they're saying. Then they come across this sermon. A red priest gathered, huddled. Mm -hmm. Out of view. What's happening here? Well, what's he saying? For the night is dark and full of terrors. Hey, we've heard that before. The Lord of Light sent the mother of dragons to you. Those who love the darkness chased her away. Yeah. Will you wring your hands while you wait for the mother of dragons to return? Or will you take up her flames yourself? Will you fight for your own salvation? Tyrion hears this and says to Varys, it's a problem. He sees in this moment that these Freedmen, the people who Danny saved, who are grateful, indebted, can now be contributing to this violence because that's how unstable yes. things are. An uproar can come from any corner of Marine at this point. Our queen is not as popular in Marine as she used to be. Cements the need for them to continue to improvise, continue to adjust to the circumstances on the ground, continue to try to get a grasp of the situation that's unfolding and who the participants actually are so that they can figure out how to fight the enemy. But first, they have to find the enemy. Speaking of Danny. Yeah. Danny is in a bit of a tough spot, guys. She is a prisoner of. Kal Moro's Kalasar. And her improvisational gene apparently did not kick in super quickly because right. when we return to her, she is filthy and bedraggled and has clearly been walking on foot, yeah. not even on horse, for quite some time. And has not at this point mentioned who she is. To anybody. Takes her a really long time to get to that point, which is strange. Finally, she's taken before Kalmoro. Danny makes her move. She tries. Finally. She tries first defiance. Do not touch me. I am Daenerys Stormborn of House Targaryen, first of her name. Titles, titles, titles. titles the Unburnt, Queen of Marine, Queen of the Andals titles, and the Rhoynar titles, and the First titles. Men, Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, Breaker of Trains. God, we get Mother it. Mother of Dragons. We get it. Danny. And Kalmoro's like, oh, I like this one. I think this is this one is funny. You are nobody, the millionth of your name, <laughs> queen of nothing, slave of Kalmoro. Tonight I will lie with you. And if the great stallion is kind, you will give me a son. Do you understand? She says, I will not lie with you and I will bear no children for you or anyone else. Not until the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. The prophecy. I told you she was a witch, says one of these Dothraki women. I was wife to Khal Drogo. Khal Drogo is dead, says Moro. I know. I burnt his body. And now. Uh-oh. The code. 
The Dothraki don't have a ton of rules. There's like various cultural mores, stuff like, you know, be the strongest, don't walk when you can ride. Um, and really the other one is when the Khal dies, his wife is to be taken back to Vaistothrak to live with all the other widows of the Khals named the Dashkalin. And there they form like a, a consulting group where they'll be asked tough questions, kind of like an oracle, and they give their opinion on things. Now, Kalmoro, this kind of religious, deeply held religious belief kicks in, and he says, forgive me, I didn't know. It's forbidden to lie with the Kahl's widow. No one will touch you. You have my word. And Donnie's like, great, I'll take a horse, uh, maybe some guys, you can send me a guard, I'm going to go back to Marine Peace. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. There are customs here. When a Kahl dies... Kalmar says, there is only one place for his Khaleesi, Vaistothrak, the temple of the Dosh Kaleen, to live out her days, the widows of the dead Khals. It is known. Danny did not count on the fact that the Dothraki do not like no. to improvise in this particular area. Kalmoro, shaping yeah. up to be a villain. Cersei certainly is a villain. Oh, yeah. And it is hard to feel sorry for her when she is so full of hate and when she is so responsible for so much of her own misfortune. But, but, ah, this. This episode, extremely bleak, extremely sad. And there is a moment for us as viewers where it does actually hurt to watch her hurt. Right. It's a newer sensation. Right. She's in her chambers. She's touching her new short hair. A maid enters. Your grace, I'm sorry to disturb you. A ship from Dorne has sailed right. into the harbor. Oh, my God. This the is... joy. Right. The Mas joy and on her says, face. And she She basically skips. Yeah. With joy and bliss yeah. down to the harbor, smile plastered on her face. She's skipping, she's running all the way down to the harbor, right to the edge. Small boat sailing in. Mm. She sees Jamie behind him, a golden shroud, the, the, the shroud from the prophecy. And the pain, the way that the pain plays across right. her face is first of all, it's masterful acting, it's masterful. You're tempted to say her face is a mask, but there's agony all yeah. over it. It's like a mask of agony. It's it's agony and it's resignation and it's something like, oh, yeah. This. Always this. Right. It was always going to come to right. this. And really for the first time possibly ever, she appears ready to quit, to give up. You know, on the one hand, she's not blindsided by this development because the prophecy has always led her to believe that this would happen. But on the other hand, she is Defeated. She lost Joffrey. She suffered the mortification of the Walk of Atonement. And now she's lost Marcella, her only daughter, who she just fought pretty hard to protect. She is so like goth. Yeah. She's talking about death. She's yeah. talking about dead bodies, the way she used to think about her mother's dead body, the way she's thinking now about Marcella's purity. She's telling Jamie about the prophecy and think about what that means. These people, they were part of each other, like literally from their birth. And there is no one closer to Cersei than Jamie. And this is the first time that she's telling him about this. Like that's how, that's how shaken she is. And that's the pull it's had over her her entire yeah. life. It's the one thing that she could never share with him. That and the fact that she was fucking Lancel. <laughs> and the kettle blacks where my kettle blackheads at kettle blacks where you at uh, in mourning in mourning Marcella's loss Cersei says something agonizing she was good 
From her first breath, she was so sweet. I don't know where she came from. She was nothing like me. No meanness, no jealousy, just good. Jamie says, I know, which is kind of low-key, very amusing. But if I could make something so good, Cersei continues, so pure, maybe I'm not a monster. What an agonizing moment. She is mourning. Yeah. She is grieving. Her only daughter, one of the best things in her life, truly, truly Truly. one of the only things she cares about and loves. Truly. Ripped away from her. Worse, ripped away from her in a way that she saw coming but couldn't prevent. Think back to... Cersei's season four exchange with Oberyn. Actually, while talking about the boat that she wanted to send for a gift for Marcella makes it even more agonizing. The gods love their stupid jokes, don't they? And he said, which joke is that? You're a prince of Dorne, a legendary fighter, a brilliant man feared throughout Westeros, but you could not save your sister. I am a Lannister, a queen for 19 years, daughter of the most powerful man alive, but I could not save my son. What good is power if you cannot protect the ones you love? And Oberyn says, we can avenge them. Now, surely that is playing through Cersei's mind, whether that exact conversation, certainly those ideas. And Jamie is concerned by what he's witnessing because this is not typical behavior for Cersei. He does not want to let her languish in despair. He wants to find a way to get her back to normal and that requires some improvising and especially after she opens up and tells him about Mags and the prophecy. Everything she said came true. You couldn't have stopped it because he says it was my fault. I couldn't save her, right? It's prophecy. It's fate. You don't believe that, Jamie says. Of course I do. You told me yourself when father died. You said people would try to tear Mm -hmm. us apart. Take what's ours. That was prophecy too. I didn't listen to you and everything you said came true. He is ready for this. Fuck prophecy. Fuck fate. Yep. Fuck everyone who isn't us. We're the only ones who matter, the only ones in the world, and everything they've taken from us, we're going to take back and more. We're going to take everything there is. In hindsight, this is a tough thing to hear because he is trying to make her feel better, trying to make her feel like she's not alone because there's no lonelier feeling than losing a child. But he is inadvertently, spoiler alert here, encouraging her to commit the atrocities that she's going to unleash in episode 10 in the season six finale. And this, this will be a theme this season. People saying things to Cersei, arming her with motivation and encouragement without realizing that they're doing so. Some armed people who don't need any more encouragement down in Dorne. Alaria and the Sand Snakes going after it. Yeah. The last moment before Ilaria essentially launches her coup of Dorne is basically a veiled attack on his lack of response to events. Dorne is talking about Oberyn. He experienced everything while I sat here in Dorne trying my best to keep my people well-fed and alive. But that is life. We should have our roles. Oberyn was born to be an adventurer. I was born to rule. Ilaria's response. The gods are not fools. You would have been a terrible adventurer. Look at you gout-ridden sitting in a chair. And Oberyn, psh, he would have been a terrible ruler. Ah. Now, remember, previously, Doran made her bow, made her swear allegiance to him again. And this is something that is existential to the nature of people from Doran. Remember the words of the Martells, unbowed, unbent, unbroken. And here it was, Doran made Ilaria bow. It would have escaped neither of them what this meant. 
She couldn't stomach that insult. Neither could the Sand Snakes. They've stomached too many insults, their whole region, over the last 20 years. So they had to do something. They had to adjust. They had to improvise. Tyene kills Hoda, who deserved better. Good dude in the books. Elaria kills Duran and the Maester. And Elaria stabs Duran and says, when was the last time you left this palace? You don't know your own people. They're disgust for you. Similar to um, the idea that Tyrion and Varys were exploring over in Marine. And his guards just stand there unmoving. She's right. And she says, Elia Martell raped and murdered your sister. She's basically, you know, saying, and you did nothing. Oberyn Martell, his brother, butchered and you did nothing. You're not a Dornishman. You're not a prince. And Prince Doran now, his final moments, his memories, his thoughts turn to his son, his, his, his heir, my son Tristane. Best curls since Rob. Good looking kid. And Laurie says, your son is weak, just like you, and weak men will never rule Dorne again. And he dies. And we cut to King's Landing, where Nim and Obara, who are amazing Speed at boat. traveling Took extremely fast, <laughs> kill Tristane, doing their best Carl Tanner. That, that familiar thrust through yeah. the back of the head, through your mouth. And then they're like, death. wait, I thought you were going to let me kill him. And then, you know, this Greedy kind of bitch. Greedy bitch. Jason. Yeah. One qualm with that weak men will no, never rule man. Dorne again proclamation in the books. And guys, sorry, we try not to do too much. Well, in the books. <laughs> but here we are. Yeah. In the books, weak <laughs> men don't rule Dorne. Right. With Alaria killing Prince Doran and thereby casting one of the true avatars for the he's better in the books movement right. aside, it is important to hit pause for a second and explain and admire the subtleties and the complexities of George R.R. R. Martin's Dornish arc in the books. So please. Yes. Assemble the conclave, head to the Citadel, Teach us everything we need to know about the Dornish plot in the books. Dorn. So the Prince Doran of the show is a cautious ruler. The responsibility of safeguarding the lives of his subjects weighs extremely heavy on his shoulders. The result is a paralysis in the face of various unforgivable insults, constant threats, threats of wars, etc. And Ilaria, like many of Durant's subjects, obviously, as we've just seen, considers her liege lord weak. And she's right. They are right. But, as Mallory said, Prince Durant of the books is a snake of a different color. While the critiques of him from his kin and subjects is essentially the same in the books. Weak, frightened of war, unwilling to act. The truth is very different. The Prince Doran of the books merely feigns inaction. So before I get into the story, let me go back a little bit. A little over a century to the reign of Daron II Targaryen. King Daron succeeded Aegon IV, the unworthy, to the Iron Throne, and his first moves were aimed at stabilizing the realm. So these included peace negotiations with Dorne. He was uniquely positioned to do this. Years earlier, he had wed the Dornish princess Mariah of House Martell. This pact um, was part of a series of peace overtures put forward by King Baylor the Blessed after nearly 200 years of warfare had failed to bow, bend, or break Dorne. After years of conversations, Prince Marin Martell Daron's good brother, through his marriage to Mariah, agreed to marry King Daron's sister, Daenerys. Yes, another one. By the way, it was King Daron who built the water gardens for his bride, Daenerys, so that she would better be able to enjoy the Dornish countryside in comfort. 
Marin and Danny wed a year later, and the prince of Dorne knelt before his new king, pronounced Dorne's fealties of the crown, and the realm was finally seven kingdoms in fact and name. It was the 187th year after Aegon's conquest. The Dornish really are stubborn and they stuck with it. So after nearly 200 years of genocidal and nearly pointless warfare, Dorne came to the negotiating table with significant leverage. And Prince Marin got great value for that leverage. Dorne was allowed to retain its unique culture. They were granted the right to pass its own laws, independent of the crown. This is huge shit. The Dornish could levy and collect taxes with almost no oversight. And the Lords of Sunspear could continue to style themselves as princes and princesses of Dorne. Nobody else in the realm gets to do this shit. This and the sudden appearance after years and years of warfare of Dornish nobles at court in the king's inner circle aroused a lot of jealousy, particularly amongst the marcher lords of the Reach and the Stormlands, who have been the traditional enemies of Dorne for thousands of years. So the irony here is that here is this newly won peace between the Targaryens and the Dornish who had tortured each other, killed each other with fire and blood for nigh on 200 years. And now the Targaryens were essentially Dorne's closest ally in the Seven Kingdoms because nobody else trusted them. So fast forward a century and change the dying days of Robert's Rebellion, the dying moments of Elia Martell of Dorne and her children. As we've seen this tragic and shameful event did not happen in a vacuum. To add insult to the various injuries, the new king, Robert Baratheon, was a Stormlander, and we know that they have traditional and deep-rooted enmity towards the people of Dorne. Prince Oberyn wanted revenge, and he agitated for a rebellion aimed at placing Viserys Targaryen, then a child, on the Iron Throne, John Arryn. King Robert's hand traveled to Sunspear to negotiate. Cooler heads prevailed, and Prince Doran brought his brother to heal. Or so it appeared. Dorne remained in the realm and things carried on more or less as before. Secretly, though, Doran was preparing his revenge. In fact, he and Oberyn worked very closely together, like hand and glove. And here's a passage from Feast, which really um, Prince Doran says, and it really explains their relationship so well. He says, I am not blind or deaf. He's talking now to Ariane. Miss her. Who becomes Ilaria in the show. He says, I am not blind or deaf. I know you all believe me weak, frightened, feeble. Your father knew me better. Oberon was ever the viper, deadly, dangerous, unpredictable. No man dared tread on him. I was the grass, pleasant, complacent, sweet-smelling, swaying in the breeze. Who fears to walk upon the grass? But it is the grass that hides the viper from his enemies and shelters him when he strikes. So good. That is great. And now you kind of understand why book readers are like, ah, the orange pot. Anyway. What does Prince Doran do secretly behind the scenes? He sends Oberyn to Bravos, where Danny and Viserys were being sheltered by Sir William Derry, who's the former master in arms at the Red Keep, who snuck them out of Dragonstone. They strike a pact. Doran's daughter, Princess Ariane, in the books, would marry Viserys Targaryen when they both came of age, and Dorn would support a Targaryen revenge. Now, in the books, as in the show, Viserys Targaryen was a psychotic, dickhead who got molten gold poured on his head. So this particular seed of revenge never took root. Prince Duran's other plot in the books against the Lannisters involved his son, Quentin Martell. Duran sent Quentin and a few trusted advisors to Marine, and their the basic idea, not terribly well thought out, was <laughs> uh, we send Quentin to Marine, he presents himself to Danny, and is like, hey, you need a husband. 
marry me. Now the Targaryens and Dorne are back in an alliance. You can land here and we'll support you again. The other thing is the Dornish had basically lost track of Danny once Viserys died and she was married off to Khal Drogo. Anyway, this plot or scheme, that's both the same words, right? Didn't work out well either. Not the least for Quentin, who got a little singed by Viserion and Rhaegal. But the Prince Doran of the books wasn't just sitting in his chair suffering from God. He was only appearing to. He was the grass hiding the viper. Miss you, Q. Good dude. Miss you. Just a love struck. Crispy Q. Love struck young man. <laughs> Went to his death. The basic idea, by the way, of why he went to the dragons was like, watch me impress Daenerys by <laughs> taming a dragon. Really rough. No. Though, it makes the Tyrion it scene really with Viserion does. and Rhaegal that much better because there's this tiny, tiny part. You know Tyrion's going to be fine, but there's this yeah. tiny part of you as a book reader that's like, shit, are they about to quit him? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really was. That was quite present And just in with my the mind. foundation that you know they will fucking roast you yes. if they sense anything. Ah, good stuff. Yep. Hey guys, just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, back to Binge Mode. Maester. Yeah. Sometimes I look at you and I think, so that's what I'll be like when I grow old. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> Since we never really know yeah. how much time we have left, let's head to the Sept. Let's go. Right this very instant to bathe in the light of the Seven <laughs> by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode, Lightning Round style. Let's start. With a mini Dell, we are going to learn plenty more about Melisandre's abilities and role in this story in the next episode. But hey, the season six premiere is named for her. Davos clearly sets up her impending role. And uh, by the way, at the end of the episode, when she removes her necklace, she shrivels up before our very eyes. I love it. She looks good. I think she looks great. She looks great. Cuddly. Yeah. Soft. And once you get in the bed and just like start cuddling, it's fine. What's up with glamours? Let's talk about it. How old is Mel sure. really? Take us back to the Citadel for a hot second here and teach us about Mel and her magic. Number one. Quick one. Okay, so <laughs> Melisandra. Turns out she's old. She wears that necklace and somehow it uh, makes her appear young. So how old is Melisandra? The truth is we don't really know. We have hints there are references in the book to her having, quote, practice her art for years beyond count. How many is years beyond count? Mm. Could it be 200? Could it be 300? Possibly. Non-canon rumor here. Oliver Ford Davies, the man who played Meister Cresson, talks about, in a video, which you can Google, talks about how when they were filming the scene where Meister Cresson gives Melisandre the poison and then actually he drinks it too and then he dies but she lives. At one point, the scene breaks and he says, oh, uh, I'm not sure what's going on here. Like, why aren't you dying of the poison? This is great. Like, read your fucking script, Oliver Ford Davies. <laughs> <laughs> and, Amazing. And Carice Van Houten is like, oh, I'm 400 years old. <laughs> so there is that's non-canon, obviously, but it gives you an idea. Certainly, it's not that important to know exactly how old she is, but she is- She's built up a tolerance. She's built up a tolerance. So she's certainly older than a human lifespan would afford. 
possibly centuries. And there are references in the books to her previous life as a slave mm -hmm. uh, named Melanie and being sold in a, in a lot of slaves. And this is something that haunts her. We know that um, Melisandre requires very little sleep. She sleeps like an hour a night. They say that happens with older people. Anyway, and the, and that she wishes that it was even less because when she sleeps, that's when the memories of her previous life as a wretched slave come back to her. So Melisandre, very old. Remember, this was why people, after they learned this about Melisandre and then rewatched prior seasons, freaked yeah. out about the bathtub scene yeah. when Stannis' wife, Selyse, sees Mel in the back, Sans necklace, and Mel looks great. It's like, well, she's just enough of a true believer. They then go on to talk about the kinds of tricks and illusions you need to hook people. Well, right. she's already hooked. Number two. Yeah. There are a couple lines, a couple <sighs> moments in this episode that beautifully mirror, beautifully and hauntingly mirror prior exchanges in earlier seasons. There's Brienne swearing her sword to Sansa, mirroring Brienne swearing her sword to Sansa's yeah. mother, Kat, Ugh. back in season two. And then also Jamie. Yeah. His fuck everyone who isn't us is a mirror image to an exchange that he and Cersei shared in season one after they're freaking out about what they've done with Bran. So often on Game of Thrones, we get repeating lines of dialogue that are meant to harken back to something specific, either to show you how far somebody has come, that would be the case for Brienne and Sansa, or to show you how trapped in the same cycles certain characters are. And that, of course, is the case for Jamie and Cersei. Number three, when Tyrion and Varys come across the hungry mother with the baby and Tyrion's giving his best Valerian as a second language try at her and he says, uh, he conjugates his verbs wrongly there and says to eat and then she looks horrified and recoils from him and Vera says she thinks you want to eat her baby this is a very humorous moment it's amusing nice to have a little levity yeah. number four. Oh man this was a fun week on the internet when this shit what you're about to talk about happened good time on the interwebs yeah let's talk about John's blood mm. spatter pattern <laughs> spatter pattern so there are a couple different angles here that we can parse. I would really encourage you guys, if you haven't looked at this, to Google this. Absolutely. Some, some great Reddit threads, some good BuzzFeed screenshot Love pieces. Is John's blood stain in the shape of a dragon? Uh, I, Is this a clue about his Targaryen lineage? Here's the thing. Is there a moment <laughs> as the blood, this actually goes back to the season five finale where if you stop it, you know, the yeah, blood is coming right. up, like pouring, you know, seeping out of him and it's inching up past his shoulder blade back by his head, where if you pause it at just the right moment, it looks like a wolf face. It does. And then it then transitions it to a dragon into a fire-breathing dragon. Long neck and Song kind of, of Ice and Fire, right. Stark and Targaryen. Do I think that? I know. Here's the yes. thing. Say it does look, yes. it looks, the shape is Given. very, but I mean, the only thing that keeps me from saying no is I feel like the showrunners have been so careful with a lot of stuff that the last thing they're going to do is like, let's do it in the blood spatter. You're right. They're just going to wear polos that say R plus L <laughs> equals J. Right. And, and have it carved <laughs> into the background of a scene. Yeah. Google that. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I guess it, it really does look like when you really look at it it's and sad. also it's CG, it's like, it really does look like a dragon a little bit. I love it. It's good. Number five. <laughs> High Sparrow to Marjorie. 
He says, you have started down the path, but you have many miles to go. Foreshadowing here, mm. her eventual air quotes conversion, which is a, a gambit she's going to make in season six. Number six. Number six. Good little moment here. Yeah. Bruce, debriefing with his son after battle, as one does. And he asked Ramsey, do you know who struck the killing blow against Stannis? Ramsey's like, I have no idea. I was too busy brutally murdering <laughs> right. injured men. Yeah. Which and... is a thing I like to do. <laughs> that gives me pleasure, father. And Bruce says, a shame. I'd reward the man. Guys, get it? Because Brienne's a girl. Doesn't even occur to these people that a woman <laughs> could be taken seriously as a warrior, a feared warrior, as someone who could take down a king. Number seven. Mm. A little callback to Conan the Barbarian. Do you remember Conan? When Conan the Barbarian is sitting around with his buddies and they're debating, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, to hear the lamentation of the women. That's Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then we have this scene where Kyle Morrow and his men are sitting around. They're debating. You know, there's not a lot to do out there. Dothraki Sea, no cell phones, no Wi-Fi. Just talk about, you know, what's good in life. And Kyle Morrow says, I'm glad I'm not blind. Seeing a beautiful woman naked for the first time. What is better than that? Mm, not much. Another Dothraki comes up killing another call. Yes, killing another call. That is good. And another one, conquering a city and taking her people as slaves and taking her idols back to Vice Dothrak. And then another one, uh, what about breaking a wild horse, you guys? Forcing it to submit to your will. And then Kalmara, seeing a beautiful woman naked for the first time is among the five best things in life. Okay, guys. Very amusing. Mal, mm. in our learned opinion, if we open that door, this episode's winner is going to walk right through. Each episode, we're going to honor the person who played the game and advanced his or her cause in some tangible way. And this week, the winner of our champion's purse is Sir Davos, the Onion Knight Seaworth. Second yeah. victory for Davos. And why? Well, because Davos shows up into a situation that really has nothing to do with him instinctively picks the right side, Jon Snow's side, puts his life on the line in order to, one, take Jon's body into an antechamber, and two, gamble that Jon's body isn't going to sit up as a white and right. start fucking hacking him to death, and then he stabilizes a resistance to Thorn and his men. Also has the foresight to be like, hey, get the dog. Get, get, get ghost. Ghost! Listen, protect ghost! Protect ghost! Davos. Get those wildlings. Get Mel. The courage that he, it takes it was to, all to, him. to say, let's have a chat with Melisandre here. Yeah. Is big. Small spoiler alert here. It's yes. literally the biggest spoiler alert <laughs> that we could ever issue. We can't understand the full scope of what Davos's actions mean yet. Right. But if he doesn't do in this episode what he does, then I just I'm gonna repeat one more time. Spoiler alert. Yes. John doesn't come back to life and there's no story. Yeah. Not being hyperbolic for the sake of humor. It's, this is over. This is John's story. And so right. if Davos doesn't do this, that's it. It's over. It's, it's, his decisions here are that important. Yeah. And so we want to salute his courage, yeah. his instincts. It's, it's instinctual. Something inside of right. him that just tells him this is right. And we just want to say, because it's important, that Zach was wrong and Ilaria Sand <laughs> is not the winner here. <laughs> Very quick leaderboard rundown here. Yeah. John, seven victories at this point in binge mode. Danny, five. She had that 
finale streak in the first three seasons. Tyrion's got four, including three during his run in season two. And then the Sparrows, Marjorie, Tywin, three apiece. Going to assume those counts are right. Zach counted. So if they're wrong, guys, I want to be clear. If they're wrong, blame Zach. Maddox! Notable note, we've had more than 25 different victors, including several animals. <laughs> well, two animals. Two. Well, two. Yeah, several means right. a couple, a couple animals, animals would be, would be appropriate here. <laughs> it's an editorial note. All right, guys. Yeah. Will you wring your hands while you wait for Binge Mode to return, or will you take up this podcast flames for yourself? Take it up. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today and that you will join us again next time when we will be discussing Season 6, Episode 2, Don't Want to Be Dramatic, but Home is literally one of the most important hours of television ever. It really is. <laughs> Please join us for that. And until then, remember, sinners don't make demands. They make confessions. Davos, you will be given a horse and be allowed to ride south. Could I get some mutton? That would be nice. Fine. And uh, let me get one, two, eight, uh, a jug of ale. Just make it a jug. Fine. Uh, and some, what does the dog eat? I'm not involved in feeding the dog. Could we get some dog food for the dog also? Fine. <laughs>